Papua New Guinea's just-completed general election came after months of political turmoil. It's been a significant political moment for the resource-rich but impoverished Pacific nation. This Radio New Zealand Insight programme looks at whether PNG's politicians can pull the nation back from the verge of mayhem. Election time in Papua New Guinea on the campaign trail of long-time Prime Minister Sir Michael Samari. To get to this political rally involves driving through the jungle in rural East Sepik in Papua New Guinea's north. To be in the back of a jeep driving along this or any of PNG's main highways is often treacherous for one's internal organs. The road is often rocky and full of potholes, much like PNG politics. I'm Johnny Blades and this insight travels to PNG to gauge whether the nation is ready to move away from the edge of political chaos. come to a remote village in Wingi. Deep in the bush, they're putting on some uh, cultural performances. Samari is popular in his home province, but all over PNG people celebrate election time with vigour. The five yearly election brings about a festive season when ordinary Papua New Guineans get access to benefits they otherwise never see. Elections in PNG mean weeks of polling across jungle, mountains and islands. More than 250 Australian and New Zealand military helped with running the elections and provided support for the security operations of a large deployment of PNG police and military. Professor Andrew Ladley from the School of Government at Victoria University has worked extensively in the country as a consultant on electoral processes. He says perfection is not something you can get in PNG elections, but he says the process will always be enormously expensive. You know, this election would have cost not only uh, uh, the government process, which is, I think, somewhere between one and two hundred million kina, but the candidates, of course, all of the most expensive places to compete in, required a minimum of uh, of a million kina for a candidate to be regarded as com- as competitive. Now that was a few years ago. Now they'll be throwing an awful lot more than that at this. There's great enthusiasm to stand in the five yearly elections. Winning political office gives access to rare financial opportunities, and this may account for there being a record number of almost 3,500 candidates standing for 111 seats in this election. Vote buying has been a constant. At Port Moresby's Rainbow Market, voters know the game. Timon Waribi comes from Hella Province, one of the resource-rich Highlands provinces awash with big money around elections. Mr Waribi says that to seriously contest, candidates must buy votes. If I want to be a candidate, I must have some sort of millions. You get money, that must you vote. That's sort of that's how we operate here in PNG. They're expecting things. They offer and then they take the vote. How much for a, you know, for a first <laughs> preference vote, roughly? Uh, normally like a hundred kina, fifty kina, or if they come in a group that they can even buy you a thousand. That's what we do here in PNG, Papua So have you taken something to vote? Yes, I did that. Yeah. So, Will you vote for him? Uh, I vote for my the person who I know, but yeah. I like, I go for the quality. But others reject efforts to purchase their vote. A fruit trader, Shelley Nepa, believes change starts with oneself. I want change. I cannot trust the politicians. Most of the people will think the same as I do. We cannot trust any politicians. But basic services hasn't been delivered, hasn't been fulfilled, as their promises during uh, uh, 
uh, their campaign periods, they've said that they will deliver services on their campaign. <laughs> they haven't done anything since. For the past 36 years, we haven't seen any changes in both rural and urban. The appetite for change at this election is all the more pointed after a year of political chaos. A grinding political impasse halted the process of government following the ousting of leader Sir Michael Samari. PNG's first Prime Minister when independence was gained in 1975, Sir Michael has been in the role for over half the time since, leading the nation in four separate stints. Mass defections from his government last year enabled a controversial parliamentary action to declare a vacancy in his seat due to his prolonged absence in Singapore for medical treatment. Time has come that I have to give up, but I did not uh, agree with the way I was treated by Parliament. I was very, I was sick, I was in a hospital. MPs then voted Sir Michael's former finance minister Peter O'Neill in as Prime Minister. Sir Michael challenged the ousting in the Supreme Court. I challenged it in court and I won that case. For some reason, the rogue Prime Minister and his cohorts decided they move a motion to remove me from Parliament. That is illegal. It's illegal government. I know that uh, other, other countries accepted him as the Prime Minister, but as far as the Constitution of Papua New Guinea is concerned, he's illegal Prime Minister. But a vast majority of MPs supported the O'Neill regime. One of them was the Governor of the National Capital District, Powers Parkop, who says the mandate of Parliament had to prevail. The Supreme Court was split on the issue as well. It was not an absolute uh, addition made by the full bench. There were two senior judges who disagreed, so we cannot say that we were absolutely wrong or we breached the Constitution, but um, we were given a situation where we had to be creative, where the law did not provide anything way out. Uh, we had a situation where uh, Grand Chief Sir Michael had been away from public office for about eight months, and as, as uh, you know, political leaders of our country, we couldn't allow that vacuum to continue. For months, the country had two men claiming to be Prime Minister, two governments and two of most major officers, Governors-General, Police Commissioners, and, during a brief mutiny at Army Headquarters in January, two military commanders. Andrew Ladley says the standoff brought PNG very close to the brink of mayhem. Papua New Guinea came as close as anyone wants to get to being, you know, really awkwardly placed in relation to the, its constitutionality and all of its key officers, you know, prime ministers, um, speakers, uh, you know, the key leading uh, figures in, in the police, um, you know, uh, governor-generals, and, of course, uh, ministers, and so on. And um, this was um, a legislator, a uh, executive, and this was an extremely, you know, serious constitutional impasse. After the Supreme Court ruled against the O'Neill election, his administration made a series of legislative manoeuvres to retrospectively render its removal of Sir Michael legal. As a vortex of legal matters grew, MPs passed legislation giving the government the power to suspend judges, posing a major threat to the traditional independence of PNG's judiciary. Perhaps the only other time in PNG's history when its democratic institutions were under such threat was the Sandline Affair of 1997. Then the government of Julius Chan was brought down after engaging mercenaries to resolve a fight for independence in the province of Bougainville. 
the man credited with bringing the sandline situation under control and saving PNG from lapsing into chaos was the former military commander Jerry Singedok. He says the recent political turmoil had leaders again showing disrespect for the rule of law. He says PNG is 37 years old and can't keep making excuses for its shortcomings. That's not young in in adult sense. That's that's mid. You're in your midlife. Uh, Papua New Guinea would have learned lessons, and this is the time in our political history to show maturity. Uh, unfortunately, in the past uh, 18 months or so, we have not seen that. We have seen series of uh, incidents that I don't need to cite. But the more alarming one is when when the Deputy Prime Minister can storm into uh, the Supreme Court with armed soldiers and policemen and, and uh, hold the Chief Justice uh, at random, um, thus intimidating and compromising the fabrics of democracy and our constitution. But how did PNG get to this point? A senior researcher in governance and institutional matters at PNG's National Research Institute, Dr Henry Okole, says long-term issues relating to government gaining power at the expense of parliament have come to a head. Following years of parliamentary instability driven by motions of no confidence, in 2002, PNG brought in the organic law on the integrity of political parties and candidates. Dr Okole says this was the key to Sir Michael's unbroken nine-year run in power. Now, what that law basically did was to authenticate a reality in Parliament where the majority of parliamentarians were now on the executive side. So, in other words, it's basically strengthening strengthen the whole of Sir Michael in the government. And that's part of the reason why, for the first time, uh, Papua New Guinea had a, f a full uh, five-year five term of, of, of Parliament. But the downside of that, though, was it created frustrations, it created animosity. And because certain members of the Somari camp themselves became reckless, knowing that they won't be removed from power, and that created a lot of uh, uh, factional uh, fighting and oppositions against members of the Somari side. However, following a 2010 Supreme Court ruling, some of the restrictions in the organic law were lifted opening the door for a return to the past problem of political instability. A professor in comparative politics at Victoria University, John Frankel, says part of the problem is that there are no clear ideological divisions in PNG politics. It's not as though you have a, a Samari party that is trying to implement a clear manifesto and is troubled in doing so by an opposition that wants to implement a different manifesto. There are no such cleavages. There are no such political divisions in Papua New Guinea politics. It's all pragmatic. It's all largely personally oriented. And as a result, little has achieved. What's the core consequence of this? It means a country that has had, you know, that is rich in natural resources, that has had a lot of uh, extractive companies coming in, mining, in forestry, in other areas, generating quite a lot of money. A lot of that money has been fretted away and people in Papua New Guinea remain very, very poor. It's the poorest country in the Pacific region. There's signs of uh, malnourishment in various parts of the country. There's a lot of poverty, certainly in terms of uh, ability to afford schooling and health conditions, and governments have done very little about it. Sir Michael Samare asserts the stability of government in the last decade underpinned the consecutive record years of PNG's broad-based economic growth. During these years, PNG's became one of the world's fastest-growing economies. Mining projects boomed. Oil production in the highlands kept pumping. 
The $18 billion liquefied natural gas project led by ExxonMobil began, and now more major global energy players are converging on PNG, seeking to unlock the value of its significant gas deposits. Forestry galloped ahead like never before. PNG has the world's third largest tropical rainforest, and deforestation has increased exponentially in the last few years. The logging industry could result in the loss of half the country's trees within 10 years if a special agricultural and business lease system continues. The leases involve customary landowners signing over their land to companies and corporations. Betel nut vendor and social commentator Martin Namarong has researched the special leases. There was a commission of inquiry set up to find out how 5.2 million hectares of land in Papua New Guinea was acquired. And what was coming out in the inquiry was that particularly the land investigation process wasn't done at all. It's not about done properly, it's just not done at all. And what that meant is that all of those leases were essentially fundamentally flawed. Malaysian and Australian firms control most of the land under the special leases, earning hundreds of millions from PNG's rich forests. PNG could be approaching a time when it should be possible to be more independent of handouts from Australia, but it's still reliant on foreign assistance and continues to be shaped by the international corporate powers developing its resources. The shaping extends to legislation and government, according to the PNG coordinator for the International State Crime Initiative, Dr Christian Laslett. There have been documented examples um, in the forestry industry of systematic corruption, and that has gone right up until mo most recently. With respect to the mining industry, the recent Ramu Nickel project, in that case, you had a situation where major legislative changes were made uh, to the Environment Act in order to stop landowners from gaining compensation for environmental damage. Now, one has to wonder how such a um, significant legislative change was achieved. He says corruption among PNG's government and public sector is deeply entrenched. And it's reached to a point where, as Sam Coyne of Task Force Sweep said, it's, it's systematic, uh, it's a mobocracy. He used, that was the word he used to describe the system, and by mobocracy he meant there is a very organised elite network of businessmen and politicians uh, uh, who operate in order to reward each other in various ways. Each year, MPs are given almost $6 million in development funds for direct use in their electorate. The former Prime Minister, Sir Makere Murauta, accuses the Samara government of siphoning off $35 billion of public funds. In terms of its official long-term strategies, the country is set to fail most of the development goals. And participation by PNG people in the development of their own resources remains very low. Martin Namarong believes the money is squandered and rarely used to improve roads, schools or hospitals. Folks like, uh, I remember the Olowe Institute talked about these so-called isolated economies that exist in this country, you know, benefits from mining or logging or, or whatever industry is limited to certain geographical areas because the tools for distributing wealth, you know, whether it's road transport or shipping or the banking system, and up to scratch to allow for wealth to be distributed or even people to say go and sell stuff or local produce and make money for themselves. So it's not just about handouts but it's about how people can participate in the economy. It's estimated that 85% of PNG's population of around 7 million live in rural areas. The reach of government has not extended to many of these communities.
Where it does reach, PNG's public sector is often so broken that people argue that it has dropped below the standard it was at when Australia granted PNG independence in 1975. A walk through the country's premier medical facility, Port Moresby General Hospital, seems to confirm the deterioration. In the paediatrics ward, there are a lot of children with TB. It's one big hall with dozens of dilapidated beds and stretches. There's a shortage of nurses, according to the medical student who showed me around but didn't wish to be named. You have uh, guardians and friends uh, sleeping on the floor and the patients on the bed, open space. Um, as you can hear at the background, are kids crying usually because hospitals always run out of painkillers. <laughs> For paediatrics, it's straightforward. You always have shortages of nasogastric tubes, so that's the tube that goes down into the stomach to remove stuff, um, and painkillers, the two things that always run out quickly. Someone someone's just doesn't uh, do the economics well, if you like. The health economics isn't there to get... The adequate number of supplies. In education, it's a similar story. Despite pronouncements about plans for free education from the O'Neill government, PNG's schools remain vastly under-resourced and teachers receive pay sporadically. Charlotte Namarong, who recently left teaching, has felt the strain. When I went in there, we were teaching about 80 students and then because of this reform, the number went up to 100 in a class. I was teaching there until felt that, you know, the workload was so much. And we were paid about 300 kina a fortnight. After deduction, you come down to 200 kina a fortnight. You know, it doesn't worth it. <laughs> the neglect of PNG's services sits uneasily next to the extravagance on display at election time. Just down this suburban road, hundreds of people are gathered outside a two-storey house. Men at the gate let me in and I'm ushered into the house where I'm told a candidate for National Capital District Governor has been addressing the crowd. So we're in uh, campaign headquarters for Michael Kandu and uh, he's um, really laid it out as well. There's been bread and lamb flaps and beer, uh, tea and coffee, all the things that are quite traditional in a PNG election campaign to disperse. Amid the pervasive whiff of the fatty meat, the first-time candidate talks about improving services at the hospital and on the roads. When we look back, and uh, most of the, uh, the, the provinces and the, the electorates that we come, there's no improvement. Although we have billions and billions of kina for budget, and we're talking about developments, but there's no tangible development, so um, I really can't tell where the money goes, you know. That's what, and I at least commit some funding myself too, to assist the uh, so-called, you know, marginalised, you know, uh, people in the settlements. Politicians in the capital have been turning their focus to the impoverished seaside communities of Motukotabu. These villages, perched above the sea on precarious tree branch stilts, are just around the corner from moneyed suburbs and the central business district. The residents make up 10% of Port Moresby's population. A resident of Hanuabara, Gary Taravatu, says they have barely functioning electricity supply and rely on a dribbling ground pipe for their water. This is, this is the main location where all, everybody comes and gets it. So this is your water for cooking? And cooking, cleaning, washing, uh, even feeding the babies. Yeah, yeah? They do promise uh, they'll be putting proper pipes and uh, water uh, taps through the houses, but nothing happens. 
Every five-yearly cycle, the politicians suddenly flock around. That's what they say. When the election comes, people rush, especially to the uh, Motokoitabuan villages. Why is that? Because that's the number we have, like uh, what I said. Like, you know, we have about 18 to 19,000 eligible voters in this village. One ray of hope for many voters in this election was the record 134 female candidates contesting a seat. Until this poll, there had only ever been four women MPs, possibly a reflection of the inherent marginalisation of women. According to the international aid and lobbying organisation Oxfam, two out of three women in PNG have experienced domestic violence and 50% have experienced forced sex. A bill to create 22 reserved seats for women aimed at addressing the lack of female representation fell short in the last parliament. However, an advocate for reserved seats, Betha Somare, says female candidates are disadvantaged from the outset. We won't get used to women members of parliament unless we use affirmative action to get them in there um, so that people are used to seeing women in a leadership position because it, it isn't a level playing field in the sense that um, say up in certain areas of the highlands and it's been documented um, women candidates that have stood their supporters have been threatened they're threatened in that if you stand, then your whole house line will suffer. So in order to stop unrest and things like that in their area, they back off. It's been one of the major successes of this election that three females won seats. The result exceeded the expectations of Dame Carol Kidu, a long-time MP who retired at the election. She says given the usual high turnover of MPs, 69% of the MPs elected this time are new, the success of these women must be built on. Yet the men still have control. Sir Michael Samari may be a shadow of his former self, but contesting the elections was always about justice. As expected, he won the East Sepik regional seat. However, others in his National Alliance Party, notably his son Arthur, lost their seats. The Samari dynasty appears to be coming to an end. According to international observers, the election had many flaws. There were numerous delays due to weather and logistical challenges. Violence around campaigning and voting again flared in parts of the highlands. But in the interests of resolving the political impasse in the immediate term, the election has been described as largely acceptable. As usual, no single party won a majority of seats, although Peter O'Neill's People's National Congress emerged the clear leader. Andrew Ladley says PNG has come to expect the blatant horse trading that swung into action well before the count was over, but that it's impossible to dampen the sense of hope among Papua New Guineans that elections will bring change. There's nothing that compares with PNG anywhere. I mean, PNG is its own unique leader, is a unique democracy, really. And um, this process, uh, in the absence of strong political parties, is really sort of the market rules. And as with all marketplaces, uh, either you regulate it or the market just does what the market's going to do, which is it tries to get as much money into the process as possible and tries to let money win. Because of the amount of money now in the economy, it's going to be much harder to avoid huge amounts of money being, being offered and made available in order to get 
um, MPs to join particular conglomerations. A new government has now been formed, with Peter O'Neill as Prime Minister, atop a coalition government made up of several political parties. The most surprise outcome of the election is that Sir Michael Samari's camp is in the coalition. It's a dramatic turnaround from a month earlier when Sir Michael vowed to send Mr O'Neill to jail for contempt of court and, coming almost a year to the day since the ousting of Sir Michael, the culmination of a remarkable year in politics. But major change is still being advocated and a review of PNG's constitution involving all parties looms as a priority for the likes of Dame Carol Kidu. Perhaps we do need a Senate because legislation can be just bulldozed through so easily in Papua New Guinea because we don't have effective parliamentary committee system. Theoretically, we have a committee system to review laws, but it's not effective. And so maybe we do have to get a, a bicameral system. But would any government be willing to do that, to know that that will be a, put a bit of a curtailing on their legislative powers? Martin Namurong is not alone in saying the problem isn't so much with the system as with the application of it. Parliaments have been consistently undermining Ombudsman Commission by uh, not increasing its capacity to handle such cases. And this lack of capacity has been uh, resulting in the consistent political chaos that's happening in this country because the, the system, the mechanism that's supposed to ensure stability and to create order is not functioning. I mean, I like to think that in PNG we do not have a law and order problem. We have a problem with keeping order. <clears throat> the laws are okay, it's just keeping order. Dr Christian Laslett says the greatest challenge for PNG is to break the grip of the so-called mobocracy. This is a social system. It's not a choice of individuals. It's not uh, something that I think people are electing to do. You can't change this through education. You actually need to change the entire social structure that underpins government and business. You need a social revolution of sorts. Many of the same politicians who have been linked to rampant corruption for years have been returned after the election. Martin Namurong isn't sure if PNG has been saved from chaos. There is no reason why it cannot be repeated after the election. So the idea that there's a, there's a false hope that the election's going to resolve the uh, power struggle. After the elections, people will still want to be in power and have control of the national wealth. And with the uh, new mining projects, fisheries projects and the LNG, there's a lot of money at stake and people who want to control that. What has transpired over the past nine months is essentially a template for how people can grab power in the future. Calls for an end to corruption aren't new in PNG, but they gained serious traction during the political impasse through the emergence of stronger public discussion made possible by the growing use of social media and the internet. There is hope the public voice can place some restraint on PNG's politicians and demand accountability from government. But if the country's leaders fail to use the wealth of its resources to allow the people of PNG to stand on their own, an opportunity to avert further turmoil might be missed. I'm Johnny Blades, and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by Chris Keogh.